0: when for the time ye ought to be teachers, so he's writing to somebody who's been saved for a while, and he said, you've been saved so long that by now you should be teaching someone else. That's what he's saying. Let's look at the verse again, verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And in that verse, we find that word principles, and of course the word principle is a rule to live by. That word principle is a policy. It's a foundation under which we would make decisions. And so we're going to do a series of messages on Wednesday nights on living by principles. These are some things that ought to guide you And if you have these principles in place, they will help you with almost every decision that you have. And uh, so that's what we're looking at. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this idea of the middle of the week that we can stop what we're doing, gather with other Christians, sing these songs, and then again look into your word. Would you please guide our thoughts tonight as we begin to look on this thought of living by principles, God, would you give us some very basic rules to live by in our Christian life that will help us to solve so many questions that we face? I pray that you'd guide my words, fill me with your spirit. Lord, may we take these things to heart. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, I gave you just a couple of examples. Every life matters is a principle. And so it doesn't matter if they're old, it doesn't matter if they're young, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, it doesn't matter their education, doesn't matter their, uh, their financial status, every life matters. And so we wouldn't consider abortion, every life matters. We wouldn't consider euthanasia, or youth in Canada, I'm kidding. We wouldn't support the taking of a life because they're old, because every life matters. That principle helps us in some decisions. I gave you another principle, it's wrong to steal. Now that's kind of obvious, but there are so many today that justify why it was okay that they stole someone else's money, why they stole someone else's spouse, why they stole someone else's testimony, and yet we have a principle, it's wrong to steal. We have a principle that there's faithfulness in marriage, we believe it's one man marrying one woman for one life, and that's God's plan. And so again, these principles should help us. Last week, we looked at three different things. First of all, we looked at what's the basis for our principles. Where do we get our principles from? Look again at Hebrews 5.12. It says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you had need that one teach you again at the first principles, of the oracles of God. The oracles of God are God's word, the Bible. So folks, we go to the Bible to get all of our principles. That's the first thing. Where do we get our principles from? Second thing we looked at is the bi-level foundation of our principles. If we go to the Bible, what you're going to find is you're going to find some very general guidelines, and you're also going to find some very clear commands. And so there are two kinds. When it talks about, uh, we gave some examples. uh, When the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes, that's kind of general. But, you know, as you look further into the scriptures, the Bible in many places talks exactly what our eyes ought never to look upon. Those are very clear. We said last week that we're not to make friends with the world. Well, that's kind of a general sort of a guideline But then it says uh, elsewhere, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man thou shalt not go. And so sometimes when we talk about the foundation that we get from the Bible, sometimes it's general guidelines, sometimes it's very clear commands. And I think a lot of times we just assume they be general so that we don't have to feel guilty so we can justify it. I think if you look farther, you'll find some very clear commands that will help you but then the third thing that we noticed is the best fuel and you say well preacher what is that you know we talked about the fact that when you find these principles you can either have them forced upon you we use the word standards Standards is normally what somebody else sets, and you have to follow it because they're kind of making you follow it. If I, I gave this example that when you drove to church tonight, there were little signs, and some of those signs, uh, they said 50 kilometers an hour. Some of them said 100 kilometers an hour. Those are standards. Those are standards that the government sets forth and uh, if to you they're just standards, if you're only following that because somebody else is making you follow that, then probably if you look around and don't see anybody, you might and I might take the liberty of breaking it because they're only a standard that I'm being made to do. On the other hand, if you embrace that standard, you say, no, I think that that would be a safe thing. I'm going to follow that. We use a different word than standards, then we use the word convictions. Do you know, uh, again, the speed limit would be an example of that, and some people would say, well, Pastor, why doesn't the city just say drive safely? Because what you think is safe might be different than what I say is safe. So they have to set a standard. They have to set a standard to rein in somebody that really doesn't have any. I was going to say common sense. That wouldn't sound very good, would it? But that, that that really has no limitations. So a standard oftentimes is somebody that somebody else puts on something that somebody else puts on you. But a conviction is something that you believe and that you hold to. And whether there's someone else around or not someone else, you're just going to do it because it's your conviction. And blessed is the man, the woman, the young person, the child, who establishes some convictions of their own. It's the, it's the earnest prayer of every parent. And if you parent or have parented, it's the earnest desire of every parent that my child will do more than just what I tell them they absolutely have to do that they'll embrace those things and even carry it further because they want to. Uh, Before my wife and I got married, in fact, before we even met each other, we sat under old-fashioned preaching, and they taught this standard. They said, when you meet that young lady, that young man, when you meet them, you need to uphold a standard that you will not touch, that you'll keep yourself pure until that day that you get to the wedding altar they preached that standard. And so the young people in the church I attended, the young people in the church that my wife attended before she was my wife, many of them followed that preaching, but it wasn't really a conviction. It was only a standard. And so sometimes a young man and a young woman get together and there's no one else that's around. And folks, if it's just a standard, it goes out the window. But you know, my wife before we met, and I, before we met, we established that that wouldn't just be a standard in our life, that that would be a conviction. So it didn't need somebody to be there, though we always had somebody there. But it didn't need somebody to be there because we weren't being ruled just by a standard we were being guided by a conviction. And so again, I say, blessed is the Christian and happy is the Christian that doesn't just have standards that, that uh, rein them in, but it has convictions. And if it wasn't the first time that we were together, it was the second time that we were together. And I said to her, I said, I don't know what your convictions are, but I want you to tell me my, tell my convictions, and we simply won't touch we won't have any kind of involvement, and I won't put my arm around your shoulder, and we won't be locked arm and knock my I'm not talking about your convictions. I'm talking about mine. And I told her that you can relax. I won't try anything fast. I won't take you off guard. And you know, that set our whole courting at a very easy situation. That's the difference between standards and convictions. Do you know... Almost everywhere you go, they have standards. You go to McDonald's. I think our McDonald's has this. Certainly, some restaurants have this: no shirt, no shoes. What's the next thing? No service. That's a standard. Now, listen, well, Pastor. I, I could buy a burger and fries and eat them without shoes. Maybe some guy would say, "Well, Pastor, I could I could buy a burger and fries without a shirt." And still eat, you could, but you wouldn't be able to eat there because it's a standard that they've set. Is everybody happy about that standard? Probably not. There's probably people that would buck it, but I think the majority of people are glad that there is that kind of a standard in the restaurant so they don't have to he- eat while they cover their eyes. It's a standard. Uh, If you were to enroll in the army, they have all kinds of standards. And you can grumble all you want, but they'll tell you when to get up and when to go to bed and how to make your bed and how to make it so that a quarter will bounce off it. They have all kinds of standards. And the happier soldiers are the ones that simply accept the fact that there are standards. I say the government has standards. I say homes have standards. And I talked last week about churches have standards. And there's always some people who say, well, I just don't know why. Well, listen, a standard has to be set. Now, listen closely to what I'm saying. Sometimes standards are subjective. Princess, who decided you could only go 50 kilometers an hour in the city? Why can't you go 52? Surely someone could go 53, and it would still be safe. How many are with me so far? On the highway, many of them say 100. Well then why in some highways can you go 110? I'm saying sometimes standards that are set are subjective. But it's the right of whoever is in charge to set a standard in the interest of accomplishing the bigger goal. And if you just say, it's just the way it is, and just embrace it and take it and do it. Happy are the people that simply work within the standards. Now again, we are in a new generation that's trying to cast off all of the standards. Why do do I have to do it this way? And why do I have to do it now? And you'll just be a happier customer if you just figure what the guidelines are and do that. You know that's true for a church, it's true for a business, True for a home. In fact, let me give you an example. Then we're still not to tonight's uh, principle, uh, but let me show you this. Uh, l- look over there, if you would, in Jeremiah chapter thirty-five. Jeremiah chapter thirty-five. So, so you that are young people still living at home—it's not your home; it's your parents' home, and they're actually kind enough to let you stay. Uh, you that are in uh, someone else's home—you just need to accept the fact that they have set some guidelines, they've set some standards, and uh, you'd sure make home a whole lot easier if you'd work with it. You said, Preacher, I don't know anyone else that has this standard. Really, you probably have different standards than I do. Your home probably does things differently than maybe my home does. We won't all have a clear command that set those parameters. Sometimes we just have a general guideline that sets those parameters. And again, happy is the people that embrace that. You're there in Jeremiah chapter number, uh, Jeremiah chapter 35. Look there in verse number 1. Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse 1. I, I really didn't get a chance to finish this last week. And Jeremiah 35 and verse 1. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go into the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah is told to go get this family of people. Take them into the house of God. In that house of God there were wine set out to drink. Verse 3, Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Abazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of uh, Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Mesa, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. And I said before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. Verse 6. But they said, "We will not drink. No, sorry, We will drink no wine, For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Now, that was a standard. It was a standard in the home that they were raised. A verse number seven. Neither shall you build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any but all your days... You shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you be strangers. Now, you'd have to admit that if they were raised under that standard of drinking no wine, of course you can get into, is it intoxicating wine or is it grape juice? We don't even have to get into that in verse number six because there were some standards in verse seven. Folks, you and I have never been raised in a home like that where we could never build a house, where we could never sow seed, where we could never plant a vineyard, we've never been raised under standards like that. Can you agree that it would have been very easy for the children in that home to criticize the standards, to make fun of the standards, to buck the standards? How many are with me? Those standards in that home were different than the standards in most homes. So here now, obviously the father has passed on. They no longer have that father in their home. They've now established their own homes. And so here they're given an offer that they can drink wine. They couldn't do that when they were still at home. Let's see what happens. Verse number 8, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab our father, in all that he hath charged us, To drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters stop there. So they already have their own homes. How do you know that? They've got sons and daughters. They've already established their own homes. Keep reading. Nor to build houses for us, nor to dwell in neither if we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. And so what they're saying is these were the standards that we were raised under. We didn't buck these standards in our home. And we're not bucking these standards when we've established our own home. And Altea, the generation that we're in, would say that's crazy. There is no clear command under not building a house and not planting a field or growing a vineyard. There's no clear command that you'd have to live in tents the rest of your life. But you know what these men said? We're not going to take it out wine. Instead of just having a standard, they embraced it in their life as a conviction. Now, listen, I'm not trying to make my standards yours or your standards mine. That's not what we're going... I just want you to see that there's a difference between a person that is only being controlled by standards that someone else puts on them. And a person that just with a sweet attitude embraces those things. You say, well, pastor, that's crazy. Well, let's see if God says it was crazy. Look later in Jeremiah chapter 35. And look at verse number 18. Jeremiah 35 and verse 18. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all of his precepts and done according unto all that he had commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. You know, God just blessed them. And so I encourage us if you're, if you're working at a place and they've set a standard, take it. So they want me there a quarter to seven, it's their business. They get to do it the way they want. If you're in somebody else's home, accept it. If it's a ministry in a church, accept it. If it's some position with the government, you can choose not to take it, but if you take it, accept it. Again, that's all the basis for, uh, for principles. Say, Preacher, which one are we looking at tonight? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and so again, over these next weeks, even months, we're going to look at some principles that would be good for you to have fixed in your mind and in your heart. It will help you, it'll help you through life, it'll help you have a happier life. Pastor, what are we looking at this evening? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Bible says, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'd like us to look tonight at the principle of separation. The principle of separation. First of all, if you're taking notes, and that is my title, the principle of separation. First of all, I'd have you to understand that the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit of God moved inside of you. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.19, what know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? So if you're saved tonight, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And his job inside of you is to transform you and I to become just like Jesus Christ. Won't happen in an hour, won't happen in a day, won't happen in a year. In fact, Paul said, Philippians 1 6. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so the moment that you got saved, you weren't yet like Christ. I wasn't either. And so from that moment, the Holy Spirit of God began to chisel away and cut away and blast away and began to remove from our lives some things that shouldn't be there. That's separation separation is a principle that God would have be true in every believer's life. I heard this cute story about a tourist. He walked into a shop of a woodcarver, and when he was in the front area, he saw the finished products. Right beside that finished product, be it the head of some famous person, there was a photograph of what that person looked like, and Boy, it looked the same. He had some of the animals and a picture of an animal. He had some of, all kinds of things like that. And he was fascinated how what was chiseled out of wood looked exactly like that. And so finally he goes strolling into the back room of the shop and sure enough the carver is chiseling out of wood, whittling. He had a big chunk of wood and he noticed a sketch, a drawing, what he was trying to duplicate. And after that tourist watched for a while, he said, how do you know what wood to remove? And his answer was, well, that's simple. I take off anything that shouldn't be there. <laughs> you know, when you and I got saved, at that moment that we got saved, there was still a lot of stuff that shouldn't be there. There was stuff on the outside, and there was stuff inside our heart. And it was the Spirit of God's job to get those things out. But look again there at 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. I want you to notice that as much as the Spirit of God will, in His plan, remove those things, look whose job it really is. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate. You know, it's not just the Holy Spirit that will direct us to do it. That's a command. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate. So again, we're chasing this thought, the principle of separation. And if you'd write this first thing down, it's a command of separation. It's a command. God commands this to happen. And If you remember that uh, there's a difference between general guidelines and clear commands, if you look there at 2 Corinthians 6.17, Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, well, that's kind of a general statement, not very clear. But back up to verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. The Bible says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now we're getting something clear. You need to be careful about being yoked to an unbeliever. Certainly, a yoke would be a marriage. And if you're saved, you ought to never, ever consider. who is on someone who is unsaved. Never. And if you wouldn't marry them, then you wouldn't court them. And if you wouldn't court them, you wouldn't date them. And I would suggest if you're being invited to a party, a Christian party, and there's lots of folks there, that's great. If he or she who's not saved is inviting you over to a party at their house, and they're the only other ones at the house, you already had something planned that night. I'm saying, first of all, it's a command of separation. The Bible is very clear that God commands us to do this. Very quickly, there are three things in the Scripture, clear commands of people to separate from. First one is this one, verse 14. It says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So if you're writing this thought down, there are three specific commands of people to stay away from. The first one is this, chapter 6, verse 14, and that's stay away from unbelievers. It's a command. I mean, even the second one there, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. So not only are we clearly commanded to stay away from people that are not saved, we're supposed to stay from unsaved people. Second one is Romans 16. Romans chapter 16, look there in verse number 17. Paul writes this, and I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. So, first you've written down, we're commanded clearly to stay away from unsaved people, unbelieving. Now, you have to work somewhere, so certainly where you work is probably unsaved people. God understands that. But as far as the time that you spend outside of work, people that you're with outside of job. If they're unbelievers, you're setting yourself up for some problems. Because you're supposed to separate. The second one, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, you're supposed to separate from people who uh, uh, they have wrong doctrine. Their doctrine is wrong. Uh, We uh, went through the summer talking about doctrines. We believe in a Trinity. Well, uh, the crowd you're with, do they believe in a trinity? We believe in a heaven and a hell. Do the crowd you're with say, well, they're, they're church-going people. Do they believe in a trinity? Do they believe in heaven and hell? Do they believe in a judgment to come? Do they believe in the doctrines of the scripture? That verse, Romans 16, 17 says, not only are you supposed to stay with away from unbelievers, separate from them, but you're also supposed to separate from them them that hold wrong doctrine. Let me give you the third one, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. 2 Thessalonians 3 is the third guideline of people that we're supposed to separate from. First, separate from unbelievers. Second, separate from those that hold wrong doctrines. Other th- one is Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves. That's separation. Withdraw yourselves from every brother. Now that's even a Christian. That walketh disorderly. So if you're writing these notes down, the third group of people to separate from is even believers that walk disorderly. You say, Pastor, that's... That's kind of a general guideline. Do we have anything more specific than that? Keep your hand in 2 Thessalonians. Go over there to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. So again, Paul's saying you bump into a Christian and you find that their walk is a disorderly walk. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Incidentally, you know, from time to time, one of the difficult things is having to ask someone in the church to leave. Remove them from the membership. And some churches don't do that because they're afraid we'll lose people. Well, look what Paul says here, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, so there is separation. If Any man that is called a brother, that's a believer, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard, or an extortioner with such an one known not to eat. In fact, that's the verse that we would turn to, or the first verse we'd turn to, if we had to discipline somebody in the church. So in there are three groups of people that God commands us to separate, first from unbelievers, back to 2 Thessalonians 3, first separate from unbelievers, second separate from those that hold wrong doctrines, and third, separate from those that walk disorderly. Now you say, preacher, that's kind of radical to separate from people, isn't it? Not according to the scriptures. It's a command. In fact, look at the context of Second Thessalonians 3. Pastor, who is it we're supposed to withdraw from there specifically? It says they walk disorderly. Let's go. Verse 6. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Does Paul give us any more information? He sure does. Look at verse 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. still this disorder walk he's talking about. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy about You know the specific example in that one? He's talking about people that won't work. He didn't say people that can't work talking about people that won't work, but instead spend their time being a busybody and talking to her and talking to him and talking about separating from those. So the very first thing we've seen tonight on this principle of separation, it's a command. It's a command of separation. i give you the second thing tonight. and We're obviously not going to get it all done, but look there in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're trying to establish some principles to live by. Last week we set the foundation for it, and today is the very first principle, it's the principle of separation. So folks, if you, if you believe what I've said so far, you can't get along with everybody in this world. You can't hang out with everybody in this world. You can't chum up with everybody in this world. Yes, you're going to have to work alongside people that are not saved and people whose doctrine is not correct and people that have a disorderly... That's true. But we're talking about after work. We're talking about the evenings. We're talking about the weekends. And if you understand this principle of separation, there are going to be some that approach you and say, hey, do you want to do something? And Sorry, can't. Why? Because you have a principle that underlines that decision. We've already looked at the command of separation. The second one, if you're taking notes, is the because of separation. Preacher, why? Why do we need to separate from anybody? Wouldn't it be easier if we get along with everybody? Look there in Galatians 5 and verse 7. Paul wrote, ye did run well. Now, he's not talking about an athlete in a race. He's talking about a Christian who, in their Christian race, he said, ye did run well. Not just okay, not just fine. He's talking about some Christians that used to be doing very well. Well, what happened? Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? There were people in the Galatian churches that used to be what we'd call great Christians, productive Christians, fruitful Christians serving Christians. And now they weren't doing any of that. Do you know anyone like that? Uh, folks, all of us would. All of us know people that at one time were going great guns for God, but they're not. What happened? Look again Galatians 5 or 7, ye did run well. Who did hinder ye that you should not obey the truth? It was a who, not a what, it was a who So the second thing we notice about this principle of separation is the because of separation. Pastor, how come? Because the people that you and I spend time with are going to leave a huge footprint on our life. And you say, well, preacher, I don't really like everything he does, but everybody needs a friend. Not that kind of friend if that kind of friend is going to stop you running well for God, you don't need that kind of friend. And so, again, secondly, the because of separation, and it's because our company will affect us. You know that uh, the old statement, birds of a feather flock together, whether you like it or not, you will take on the characteristics of people that you run with. And even if you don't like everything that they're doing, they will influence you. And whoever, whatever you spend much time with, whether it's a person or or reading or or watching, they're going to influence you. I don't know, that this, this is go back a generation at least, but there used to be a motivational speaker, and his name was Charles Tremendous Jones. Anyone ever hear that name? Okay. If you're read the same book. It, he was a promotional speaker. And people asked, what's your name? And he'd say, Charles Tremendous Jones. He, tremendous. He put that in there himself. And, you know, he couldn't blow his nose without making it spectacular. He made a statement one time, and he said this. He said, you will be the same in five years from now as you are today, except for the books you read and the people that you meet. So whatever you are today, you're going to be exactly the same in five years. The only differences will be because of the books that you read. Now, of course, this was before internet, this was before cell phones, this is before social media, so I'm gonna add that in. But he said, you're gonna be the same five years from now except for the books you read, except for the people that you meet. And except for the media that you look at. I don't think that's hard to misunderstand. It's those kind of things that will change what we are. And I think he was very right. Very quickly, uh, when he jump through this. Preacher, just exactly how will wrong friends affect us? First thing, if you write this down. Wrong kind of friends will lead us to wrong behavior. Wrong kind of friends will lead us to wrong behavior. If you have one bad friend, they'll try to get you to disobey your parents and hide things from your parents or turn against your parents. A bad friend can do that. You know, one bad friend will try to get you to drink and smoke and look at smutty magazines. One bad friend will try to to get you to go to dances and parties, to steal and to lie. You might never have done those things before. The influence of one bad friend can get you to do that. A bad friend will get you out of church, or they'll get you to a liberal church that caters to your flesh instead of your spirit. And a bad friend will help you get you to do wrong things that otherwise you wouldn't do. And that's why you ought to spend time with only those who will draw you closer to Christ. Well, preacher, my friend might not be a good friend, might not be a spiritual friend, but they're not a bad friend. If your friend isn't sharpening you spiritually, you better find a friend that will. Nothing in common with this world. So why would we want to make people who are chasing after the world our closest friends? You know, just this week, just this week, I heard of a pastor's child. I talked to the father just this way, that pastor's child raised in church who decided that one worldly friend would be okay, and in short order that friend led this young man into parties and bars and skipping church and it could only go downhill from there, it wasn't long before that boy was meeting lost girls but he shacked up with a lost girl, and it wasn't long until that lost girl he got pregnant. And now this son of this preacher that was raised in a church comes back to his dad's home because he'd moved out. He wasn't allowed to stay in the home in house and do that stuff with his head in his hands, and he, he hasn't even told his dad. And he said, Dad, I don't know how to tell you this. And he said, well, then I'll tell you. He said, she's pregnant, isn't she? And I said, Dad, how would you know? He said, God told me this morning. Now, you might think that you can run 100 miles away from God, but God's got it all figured out. One bad friend. And now the son says to his dad, Dad, I know you've taught me different. How do I get out of this mess? I say to you, first of all, we understand that the wrong kind of friendship will lead us to wrong behavior. Uh, The second thing, if you write this down, the wrong kind of friendships will lead us to wrong attitudes. It's not just doing wrong, it's an attitude about it. Remember when Solomon was the king, and after he'd been the king, his son Rehoboam stepped up to the throne. Rehoboam was 40, he wasn't a young buck at all. When Solomon was the king, Solomon was a very harsh king. We all always know him as a wise king until he fell to worldly women, but Solomon was a very harsh king. He had very harsh taxation on the nation of Israel. He literally enslaved some of the people of the 12 tribes to accomplish the building. So when Solomon dies and Rehoboam, his 40-year-old son, comes to the throne. The people come to this new king and said, could you please be a little easier on us than your father Solomon was? You know the story, Rehoboam goes to the older men and said, what's your recommendation? And they said, if you just be a little easier, they'll follow you the rest of their life. He rejects that older wisdom, and he goes to the younger men's wisdom, those that are of the same age, and he says, what do you recommend? They said, be just as hard as nails. And that's exactly what he did. And he split the kingdom, and it was never restored again. I'm saying, first of all, wrong kind of friendships lead to wrong behavior. Second, wrong kind of friends uh, lead to wrong attitudes, could you write this down, wrong kind of friendships lead to wrong actions? It'll literally get you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. We know that when Peter was arrested, or sorry, Jesus was arrested, Peter followed. That's a good thing. But Peter didn't follow far enough. Instead, he stopped outside that palace and warmed his hands by the fire of the very soldiers that had arrested Christ. Wasn't there very long? And someone said, aren't you one of the disciples? No. A little while later, weren't you one? No. And by the time the third one spotted him, Peter began to curse and to swear. You know, the wrong kind of friendships will lead to the wrong actions. And if you have a friend that's trying to get you to do something bad that you've never been done before, you were never trained that way, your parents warned you against it. If you have a friend that's leading you down a path, you need to get away from that friend. I, I read about this, and I probably need to stop at this. It's a true story about a young man. He was a new missionary recruit. He arrived in Africa, and He was going to serve the first term with older and more experienced missionaries. And he was very earnest. He was very zealous. He was very sincere. And after he had been in that area for five or six months, the unsaved people of the village that were close to where he lived, they had what they called a heathen fire dance. So they lit this fire and they started playing wild music and and literally they would work themselves into a frenzy. And they would dance through this fire and they'd begin to peel their clothes off and everything that was wicked. He saw that after he'd been there for five or six months and he watched as uh, the more experienced missionaries, they gathered outside on the hillside to pray. And what they were praying for was the spiritual protection of some new Christians that foolishly decided to go to that heathen fire dance. They should have known better, but they were young in the faith. And So these older missionaries, they went out to that mountainside and began to pray, Lord, protect them. They don't know what they're doing. The young missionary watched that for a bit, and he he asked the older missionaries, wouldn't it be better if we just go in and confront those young Christians? but the older missionaries said, no, that's not a good idea. You don't understand the strength of the spiritual forces that are at work there. You don't even want to go there because it's that powerful. Well, he didn't listen. He decided that he'd go himself. And an hour later, those older missionaries were pulling him out of that fire dance. Here he wanted to bring others out, but he ended up getting trapped himself. we only got to two points tonight. We're looking at the principle of separation. First of all, it's a command. We're commanded to stay away from unbelievers. We're commanded to stay away from those that teach false doctrine. We're commanded to stay away from those who have a disorderly walk. It's a command. Second thing, we have looked at, and it's the because. Because their influence on your life is going to change your life. And so the next time someone walks up and says, I'd like for us to be friends. We need to be ever so careful. You see a preacher, they're they're mannered, they're dressed well. Well, that's a good start. But you in five years are going to be the product of that influence. There is a principle of separation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this principle. Lord, I didn't even get this one done, and it's not the way I planned it. Lord, would you help us? Whether we're young, whether we're old, there's some people that we ought to stay away from. And Lord, it's not just lost people. Not just those that teach false doctrine. There's also some Christians that we're supposed to stay away from. And particularly if they're not zealous about God and living for God. And the reason, the because, is they will drag us down. Some naive Christians say, well, I'm just spending time with them to lift them up. The truth is that's a very proudful thought. That they wouldn't be able to affect me. It would all affect them. Lord, would you help us? If there's someone here who is under the influence of the wrong kind of friend, I pray that they would learn this principle and do it while there's still hope. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.